What do you want? Abu, Bakar, al-Baghdadi is dead. A terrorist is responsible for the murder of thousands. This is not a method. This is an historic day. Iran alive. Victim. This is a provocation. French Accent, your podcast about Middle East, terrorism and intelligence with your host, Antoine Mariotti. Hello everybody and welcome to this new episode of French Accent. Today we will talk about the situation in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. My guest is Ambassador Hussein Akani. He has been the Pakistani ambassador to the United States and also a close advisor to some Pakistani prime ministers, including the late Benazir Bhutto. He is now director for South and Central Asia at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. Hussein, bonjour. It's good to see you again. Bonjour. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, let's start with what happened during the summer. We saw the Taliban taking control of some cities and then more and more. And suddenly it surprised everybody, including me, I have to say. They took Kabul without uh, a gunshot. How could we explain this situation after 20 years of wars, um, two decades after the beginning of the U.S. invasion. How is that possible to see the Taliban coming back to power uh, even before the U.S. left the country, which was a strong message? Well, three things happened. First, the United States never let the Afghans run their own affairs. Um, they, they tried to micromanage everything. In the process, of course, they ended up creating a weak army, weak state institutions, and overall, the situation never became particularly um, uh, 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 stable. Second, Pakistan continuously supported the Taliban. The Taliban were always having a safe haven, so they were never finished. And thirdly, America kept saying that our... Uh, we are fighting and we will fight until uh, we leave. And so they were signaling to the Taliban and their supporters in Pakistan that they were going to leave one day. So all they had to do was wait them out. So now we had a situation in which the Americans announced they are leaving. They are, the military they have built is not strong because the military is totally dependent on Americans for various uh, technical and strategic uh, guidance. Uh, the contractors who were helping to maintain the planes and helicopters were withdrawn suddenly. So then in a situation like this, the Taliban uh, were able to mount an offensive. The Afghan culture historically is that the Afghans are not amongst those nations that fight to the last man. When they realize that somebody is about to uh, is, is in a weak position, then they withdraw. If you remember, that's what happened after 9-11. The Taliban withdrew. Uh, they did not fight to the last man uh, when the Northern sure. Alliance came into Kabul. So the same thing happened this time. The Americans made mistake after mistake, for example, signing the Doha agreement in which they made it clear that they were signing an agreement with the Taliban, but they were not doing an agreement with the um, Afghan government. And that made a uh, that conveyed to the people of Afghanistan that it was the Taliban who were going to be ruling Afghanistan in the future. So in that way, they actually created a situation in which the Afghan government was totally overwhelmed. So do you think today's Taliban are the same since the 90s Taliban? 
Absolutely. Uh, the Taliban are people who are brainwashed in madrasas. Most of these madrasas are across the border in Pakistan. They have a particular mindset. They have a particular ideology. They are trying to recreate a society that existed in the 7th or 8th century. So while they have some better and more articulate representatives who went to Doha to negotiate, their core ideology and beliefs have not changed. And we have seen that. They are still denying girls the right to go to school. They are still beating women. They are still using force against anybody who disagrees with them. They believe that anything they do is in the name of God and they are doing what God wants them to do. So if they are doing what God wants them to do, then how can they change according to the wishes of men? By the way, because all our listeners do not know you, uh, we all know the Akani network, which is an important part of the Taliban. Uh, its leaders are in the Afghan government today. Um, perhaps it could be great if you can explain to our listeners if you have any family link with them. I have no family link with the Afghan Taliban because uh, the, uh, the Haqqanis that are from Uh, uh, that are part of the Taliban, they are people who studied in a madrasa called Madrasa Haqqaniya. So Haqqani is not their family name. Haqqani is my family name. All my, my But in the case of the Haqqanis of the Taliban, Haqqani is a title, not a surname, even though they use it as a surname. They went to the Haqqani Madrasa, and therefore everybody who went, it's like somebody going to Sorbonne, makes his name and makes it Sorbonneer, as his last name. And, and that's what the Haqqani network people have done. They are people who are, st uh, who are former students of the Haqqani Madrasa, which is located in the northwest of Pakistan. So you are a different Haqqani network, a diplomatic one. Absolutely. And <laughs> family's roots are my, my, my father's family. They came from Delhi in India, and then they moved to Pakistan after partition. Uh, so they have nothing to do with either uh, Afghanistan physically. They, they are not from Afghanistan and they are not from the northwest of Pakistan, from the Pashtun area of Pakistan. Let's talk about Pakistan. What role did Pakistan play to help the Taliban come back to power? Well, first of all, we have, must understand what Pakistan's policy has been in relation to Afghanistan. When Pakistan was created in 1947, the people of what is today the northwest of Pakistan, what is called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, KP province, and it was previously called Northwest Frontier Province, this area uh, did not agree with joining Pakistan. They are mainly Pashtun, ethnically. Pashtuns are the largest group also in Afghanistan. They have a lot more in common culturally and ethnically with Afghanistan. And the then government of Afghanistan also objected that Pakistan is being created on territory that the British had taken uh, from Afghanistan. So Pakistan always felt that unless it pushes Afghanistan back a little bit, but Afghanistan will have irredentist claims on Pakistan's Pashtun areas. And there will be an emotional and psychological affiliation in northwest of Pakistan for Afghanistan. So even before the Soviets came to Afghanistan and the jihad was started, Pakistan was always trying to influence the events of uh, political events of Afghanistan in a way in which it could have people in power in Afghanistan who would leave Pakistan's Pashtun territory uh, out of any dispute and discussion. Uh, 
Now, when the Soviets came, the Pakistanis got the chance to train a lot of Mujahideen to fight the Soviets. And among them, they chose some groups that were more Pashtun and more Islamist and said, we support these groups because even after the Soviets go and even after the Americans leave this region, we will have a proxy that will have influence in Afghanistan and will be supportive of Pakistan. When the Russians left and the Americans lost interest, Pakistan supported the Taliban. So Pakistan's interest in supporting the Taliban was not just about one thing or another. It was about creating a government in Afghanistan that was supportive of Pakistan and that did not allow any outside power, especially India, which Pakistan objects to, to have influence in Afghanistan. So it's a strategic decision. It is a strategic decision to support these obscurantist groups. And that strategic decision meant that after 9-11, when Pakistan changed sides, instead of supporting Taliban, supported the Americans, it did so only, only because it was afraid that otherwise the Americans will uh, take some action against Pakistan. Pakistan's leaders, and if you read General Musharraf, who was then the dictator of Pakistan, his book, he writes that we never expected the Americans are going to remain in Afghanistan for so many years. We thought they will leave in one or two years. They're coming to punish Al-Qaeda. They will punish Al-Qaeda and they will go back. So when the Americans stayed on, the Pakistani decided that they will continue to support the Taliban and make sure that the Taliban create a situation for the Americans where Americans say, oh, we don't want to stay here. So that once the Americans go, then we can have our proxies, the Taliban, back in power in Afghanistan. So during the last 20 years, all Taliban major leaders were living in Pakistan. One of the Taliban uh, leaders was killed in Pakistan, Mullah Mansoor, who was the second Amir after Mullah Umar. Mullah Umar died in Pakistan. And even when the Americans decided to have talks with the Taliban, who brought the Taliban leaders to Qatar? It was the Pakistani intelligence service. So they were in Pakistan, even though Pakistan used to deny that they were there. So the Taliban have had Pakistan's full support. But here's a problem. Because Pakistan, even though it supports these Islamist elements, is not a fully uh, theocratic country. Pakistan's leaders are modern, with modern ambitions. The Taliban don't 100% trust the, Taliban, uh, the, the Pakistani military and they are not fully controlled by the Pakistani military. Now, when the Taliban are back in power, Pakistan is in a very difficult position. The whole world expects that Pakistan will control the Taliban. And the Pakistanis now say, we can't control the Taliban. We supported them, but we can't control them. And so now Pakistan will have a double pressure, the pressure from the Taliban to get more support for them from the international community and the pressure from the international community to try and change the Taliban. But Pakistan's role was always critical and crucial in supporting the Taliban. And in a TV documentary I made recently on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, um, we met for this, and former U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, which are Armitage, told me that Pakistan always played 
uh, a double game. And last time we met uh, a few months ago in Washington, D.C., you told me something, uh, you just mentioned something very strong from a former Pakistani official. You told me that your country, Pakistan, never fully cooperated with the U.S. in the fight against, against terrorism and against the Taliban. Uh, despite all the speeches by then-President Musharraf, etc., it's, it's very strong. But that is the reality. Pakistan has its own strategic calculus. I don't support it. That is why I live in exile. But many Pakistanis do, and that is the Pakistani strategic vision. Pakistan feels, Pakistan's leaders feel that they have a permanent conflict with India. They think that they need to secure Afghanistan under an Islamist government because an Islamist government in Afghanistan will be not nationalist and will not support Pashtun nationalism in Pakistan. And so the Pakistani uh, regional ambitions do not, uh, do not support the idea of controlling Islamists completely or to support the Americans in succe successfully building a Republican government in Afghanistan. Um, this is a bit what a former CIA station chief in the region, and you, you know him, Robert Gonier, told me. Uh, after 9-11, Pakistan suddenly fully cooperated with the U.S. in the fight against Al-Qaeda, and it was quite new, he told me, but never regarding the Taliban. It was two very different things. Is that correct? In my opinion, it was a mistake for the Americans to accept that. They should have pointed out that, no, 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 the fight is against both the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. But look, in the end, the Americans themselves, by talking to the Taliban, have given the indication that now even the Americans accept that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are two different things. Well, they may be two different uh, structures, but the fact remains that their belief systems are similar. And Taliban will never act against Al-Qaeda. Now, the thinking of some people in America and in other places has been that um, the Taliban are only local, whereas Al-Qaeda is global. So therefore, America was right in dealing with Al-Qaeda, but it does not have to worry about the Taliban. I don't agree with that. People who have shared beliefs often help and protect each other. And so Afghanistan will become a safe haven for all kinds of extremists and terrorists from all over the world who share the Islamist ideology of the Taliban. But the American policymakers did not make that a priority. And for that, they paid a heavy price. Soon after 9-11, when they went there, they should have insisted that Pakistan should cooperate not only against Al-Qaeda, it should also cooperate against the Taliban. Yeah, and you just told me it was a mistake from the U.S. administration to, to, to accept this, to accept this double game. Uh, but the U.S. officials, former U.S. officials I interviewed, told me, yeah, but we didn't realize immediately. We, we thought they were cooperating on both sides, but we realized it wasn't true. Do you think it's true or they didn't realize that they realized very soon? Well, there are some who didn't realize and there were others who did not think it was important. You know, America can sometimes have a lot of hubris. They can feel that, you know, we are so big, we are so powerful. I remember talking to an American official about this and he said, yeah, but are the Taliban really a problem for us? They are just primitive people. Why should we worry so much about them? We are more worried about Al-Qaeda because they are sophisticated and they attack abroad. 
Now, what the Taliban do with their own women of Afghanistan or with their own people, why should that be our worry? Even Mr. Khalilzad, who has signed this agreement, the Doha agreement, etc., he said that even before in 1996, that, you know, we can't control everybody's decisions within their country. So, whereas the fact of the matter is that the reason why the Taliban protected Al-Qaeda was because they had a shared belief system. And now we will have a situation in which everybody who shares an Islamist view all over the world will end up finding a safe haven in Afghanistan. And it will also become a threat for Pakistan, even though Pakistan has been the Taliban's biggest backer. And you talked about uh, a few minutes ago about the Taliban leaders who were in Pakistan, but we have to remind people that another one was in Pakistan. It's Osama bin Laden, uh, and he was found in Pakistan and in a city very close to the what we can call the Pakistani West Point, uh, an important uh, military place. But here's my point, Antoine. Everybody in Pakistan, of Pakistani officials, they say, we did not know bin Laden was here. Okay. If we accept that, question, How did bin Laden live so near the Pakistan Military Academy unless he had somebody supporting him? Now, that somebody does not need to be the president. It does not meet, meet, need to be some general. It is the Islamist network within Pakistan that was hiding him. And so Pakistan has to realize that the Islamists that live in Pakistan, they are sympathizers of global terrorist groups. And there is no such thing as a local Islamist terrorist group anymore. They are all connected and they will all help each other. So that is why bin Laden was there. And you said uh, with the help of Islamist networks in Pakistan, but also um, from the ISI, the Pakistani Military Intelligence Service? We have no evidence of that, and I don't think anybody in the international community has alleged that so far publicly, but who knows? We don't know. Look, the point is, Hillary Clinton put it very well. She said that if you are going to keep snakes in your backyard, someday they will bite you, and they will not always bite whom you want them to bite. So Pakistan has allowed all these Islamist groups and radical groups to organize inside Pakistan. We see them. For example, this one group that has been agitating to expel the uh, French ambassador, uh, you know, uh, over the uh, insult to the prophet. You heard about them. This group is going to create problems for Pakistan. The other day, they killed some innocent man, uh, a manager of a factory who was from Sri Lanka. So having extremist groups is a bad policy, but Pakistan sometimes does not accept that. Let's focus now on Pakistan. Um, first, what do you think of Imran Khan government? Well, I think that the Imran Khan government, of course, uh, uh, is, is run of the mill for Pakistan. Imran Khan, despite the fact that he's a playboy, has a reputation of being a playboy in the West, cricketer, etc., he still thinks like an Islamist, Islamist extremist. You can see many of his statements. He, he, his, his sympathies are with them. Even his election was not necessarily the result of uh, just genuine popularity. We all know that the Pakistani military helped him win the election. Uh, there was a lot of political manipulation and all that resulted in that. So we have this situation that uh, we all, uh, uh, we know that uh, uh, Pakistan has had a long period in which Pakistan's military 
has determined Pakistan's political future, not the people. So the Imran Khan government is part of that, uh, is a product of that background. And therefore, I personally think that uh, it a, is not fully democratic or even the representative of the people's aspirations. B, it has not been a very successful government in running the country effectively. And C, it is too close uh, to the Islamists uh, in its thinking. And therefore, uh, it does not necessarily strengthen Pakistan uh, because I feel Pakistan's future lies with a more uh, modern, liberal, secular government. And your first book was called Between Mosque and Military. Do you think it's uh, still accurate in today's Pakistan? I think so. I think that we have had some generals, like the current army chief, General Bajwa, who wants or who says he wants to push back the Islamists. But the system is structured in a way in which the Islamists have a lot of internal strength. Pakistan's school curriculum uh, creates a sympathy for the Islamists. Um, the government never takes action against Islamists the way it takes action against liberal dissidents uh, uh, and critics of, uh, of the regime. And so uh, it is not going to be easy. And the military has always used the Islamists as allies in its strategic um, policies towards India, towards Afghanistan. They use the Islamists for jihad in Kashmir in India. They try to use the Islamists, uh, the Taliban, uh, for, uh, for, for fighting in Afghanistan. When you have alliances like that, then there is definitely an effect on your own population. There is also a Pakistani Taliban, as you know, and that Pakistani Taliban wants to create Taliban-like Islamic system in Pakistan. So that builds in into the structure a lot of conflict and a lot of difficulties. And it's a very dangerous game. Absolutely. Uh, the security of a country should not be based on uh, an ideology that the country does not really want. So Pakistan's military doesn't want Pakistan to be a fully Islamist state, but it uses Islamism. And in the process, Pakistan is stuck between the mosque and the military. And that is why the economy is not making progress. Uh, a very large number of Pakistani children don't go to school. Some go to madrasas, and the madrasas, of course, don't train anybody for any modern uh, life. So when you, and the, pop, the, uh, the literacy rate is only about 53, 54%. Now consider that in 1947, when Pakistan became independent and the and British India was divided, what is today India had a literacy rate of about 18%. Uh, what is today Pakistan had a literacy rate of 16%. What is today Bangladesh had a literacy rate of 12%. Today, more than 70 years later, Bangladesh is at 76% literacy. India is at 73% literacy and Pakistan is at 53% literacy. So Pakistan has not made the progress that others have made because instead of investing in education, instead of preparing their own population for a modern economy, we have ended up becoming a nation that is militarist and Islamist militant. So are you very, very worried for the years to come? 
I am very worried about the future because Pakistan's economy is very dependent on foreign support and assistance. But how long will that come? Pakistan's own population is growing. Pakistan has not invested in its own people. When you don't have an educated and well uh, and literate population, uh, then you will have limitations in your economic and uh, other growth. Now, Pakistan has an elite like myself. I'm not necessarily I grew up differently. I came up from the uh, bootstraps, but went up. But, you know, we speak English, we deal with the rest of the world, but we are a very small minority of the population. And that is not a good thing. More and more people in the country should be literate and educated. Uh, educated manpower will definitely contribute to Pakistan's economic growth. More women should be part of the uh, of the labor force, but they aren't. So all these things are. And then why would investment come? For example, if a crowd goes and burns alive a Singapore, uh, a, a, a Sri Lankan uh, factory manager because someone accused him of insulting the holy prophet Muhammad, then why would any foreigner, uh, you know, uh, be willing to come and work there? Uh, you have uh, your French. Why should the French feel comfortable in a country where just because of the Charlie Hebdo cartoons that was long time ago now, yeah. they are having they are having riots even today in the name of Charlie Hebdo and the insult to Prophet Muhammad. So modern the, the, the modern world prefers people who are willing to live and let live people who are not trying to impose their own belief system or values on others. Talking about Imran Khan government, you, do you know that the defense minister of Pakistan issued a statement saying he understands the emotions of the people who killed this man alive? I mean, like they burnt him alive. He says, I understand their emotions because if somebody insults the holy prophet, then we all Muslims, we get angry. But the truth is there are more than a billion Muslims in the world, Antoine. And all of them are not rioting. So then why is it that it's always in Pakistan that the rioting take place and people get killed? And I'm sure that the rest of the world realizes that and therefore are not willing to invest or, uh, or, 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 or come to Pakistan and work there. And that is a negative for Pakistan. And everybody remembers what happened to with Asia Bibi, for example, a Christian woman from Punjab who spent years uh, on death row after being convicted of blasphemy um, just for drinking in, in the bad cup. Uh, this question of blasphemy seems to polarize the country. Well, look, those with a more modern liberal education, they think that if somebody says something, look, then even if it is hurting, it, 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 it's emotionally hurtful for some others, it cannot result in killing someone. It should not result in violence. People say many things, you know, that are offensive to others. We live in a world in which we cannot have uh, laws like this. And Pakistan's blasphemy law is very restrictive. And now one of the things that the mullahs in Pakistan have done is that they say that anybody who criticizes the blasphemy law is committing blasphemy. Now, that's very stupid. Why can't I make the argument that the law is flawed? And I respect 
the prophet of Islam, and I respect all people of all religions, but I don't think you should have a law like this in which you make it punishable by death. That argument is a legal argument. It's not a religious argument, but they won't allow that. And so that kind of craziness is right there. And we all know that there are a lot of false claims filed in the name of blasphemy. Asya Bibi had a fight with somebody. So those women just said that this woman is uh, insulting our prophet. She said nothing that was insulting to Prophet Muhammad, you know. And so a lot of people frame each other, make false cases because they know that you put a blasphemy charge, the person will be in deep trouble, even if he or she is uh, acquitted by a court. Uh, the mob will kill them. So Asya Bibi had to leave the country, even though the court set her free. In one case, the judge set somebody free. Next day, people came and killed the judge. How can you say? He said, on the basis of the evidence, I didn't see any blasphemy, but they killed the judge. So these are the kind of situations which this law has produced. It has produced extremism. It has produced um, uh, sentimentalism and it has produced uh, uh, and resulted in violence and injustice. Uh, even when you were ambassador, uh, some of those People told you, called you the Washington's ambassador to pa to Pakistan um, because they said you have pro-Western views. Um, it, it seems like, like you explained that you have a radical part in Pakistan, a more modern part or open-minded part. Um, what can be the future? Can both those both parts live together, or at some point it will one will wheel over the, the other one? I think one will win over the other one. And my fear is that it will not be the open-minded part. And it can be very dangerous because, as we said, there are a lot of Islamist groups held by the government. Yeah. The, look, in Afghanistan, the Islamists won. Although everybody agrees that the Islamists are a minority, but the minority was able to win. That is why democracy is good, because in the election, people have a choice and they say, oh, no, I'm very religious, but I don't want to vote for the extremists, right? So they vote for somebody else. Uh, Pakistan, unfortunately, if, the, if, if ever the Islamists take power, it will be by undemocratic means. And it will be by slow taking over reins of power through machination and conspiracy. What will that do to Pakistan? We will become like Afghanistan, which is now becoming like Somalia, which had become crazy at one point. So that is not a future you want for a modern nation. And for a nuclear country? Certainly not for a nuclear modern nation, but for, but for the people of Pakistan, the 200 million people of Pakistan deserve a life like the people of Bangladesh, like the people of India, like the people of um, uh, in Europe. Yeah, you, you, we have problems. In Europe, you have problems. People complain about one thing, other. Then you have an election a few years later. You vote for the other person. You know, somebody is accused of that. But you have a process through which you effect change slowly. There is no radicalism and there is no arbitrary uh, loss of personal freedom or, uh, or, or, or the risk of losing your life. 
You are talking about you losing your life. Is it why you decided to to choose to live in Washington DC now because it's dangerous for for someone like you to live in Pakistan? Absolutely. My views are, you know, the problem is that instead of people saying, "Okay, we disagree with Hussein Haqqani's views and because we we disagree for reason 1, 2, 3, then I can turn around and say, but reason 1 is wrong, reason 2 is this." You know, I can have an argument. But if people say you are a traitor, you are an unbeliever because you have these views then you don't know somebody can come some day and just shoot and say he's a traitor he's an unbeliever and that's the end of everything there is no court there is no trial there is no discussion we're saying thank you so much for your time today it was a real pleasure to have you uh, in this podcast pleasure 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 <laughs> and thank you everybody for listening do not hesitate to share this episode on social medias it always helps have a nice day and see you next time for a new episode of french accent take care this was french accent listen to our previous episodes and do not miss the next ones on frenchaccentpodcast.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.